The reading this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. If you'd like to follow this in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1175. Ephesians 4, 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mandy. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see all the summer clothes out. Isn't it lovely to have sunshine? Um, Should we pray? I feel like praying's a good way to start, isn't it? Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. 
I thank you for who we are in you. And I ask this evening that you would speak through your word and by your spirit, that we would know you better and love you more as we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as we begin, I have a question for you, and it is this. How do you feel about rules? Okay, so my theory is that everyone exists on a spectrum of of love and hate of rules. And at one end of the spectrum, you have people like me. I love rules. I am basically Hermione Granger. I'm utterly convinced that rules are there to keep everyone safe and therefore must be followed to the letter. I have never met a rule I don't want to follow. Okay? Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you have people like my husband. Uh, Marcus's attitude to rules is that they are simply gentle guidance put there to help people understand a baseline of what is expected and that they can be, quite frankly, taken under advisement. Marcus has never met a rule he hasn't greeted with the question, but why are you here? As you can imagine, this causes some rather intense discussions in our marriage. Um, Where are you on the spectrum? You me? Hey, Marcus, are you happy middle ground? How do we feel about rules? Well, depending on your answer to that question, you will likely either love or hate this passage and the upcoming passages in the rest of Ephesians. But if you are more Marcus than me, then the subtitle of our reading today, Instructions to Christian Living, probably makes you go, oh, and question all your life choices up until this moment. But that's okay, because I have good news for you. Paul has shown his working. Even before he starts with his instructions, Paul has given us our why. Why are they here? He tells us. You see, that's essentially what the first three chapters of Ephesians are doing. Do you remember the outline of Ephesians? Hopefully it's going to come up. There we go. Chapters one to three of Ephesians are all about the story of the gospel, what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. God's cosmic plan to reunite everything under Christ by reconciling us to God and to each other by his death and resurrection through the proclamation of the revealed mystery of the gospel of Christ, crucified for all nations, which is displayed in the spiritual realms in the church. And then chapters four to six, we're in chapter four today, It's all about so what, or therefore, how we should live in response to this gospel. But chapters four to six make no sense until we understand chapters one to three. It's about how we act differently in response to the incredible grace of God. Theologian John Stott puts it like this, who we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. I'm going to repeat that. Who we are governs how we think. How we think determines how we act. And the story of the gospel tells us who we are. That's chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul starts to look into how we think. And then from 4.25, it then leads us on to how this determines how we act. So let's begin by remembering who we are. Last Sunday, if you were here, Jamie gave us a really fab list of all the things we learn about what God has done and who we are in the first few chapters of Ephesians. They're really small because there's loads of them. 
We're going to read them. I'm going to, I've got my list here, so I'm not going to try and read that because it's tiny. We are blessed in the heavenly realms. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. It was God's pleasure and desire to adopt us into his family because he loves us. In Jesus, he has given us his glorious grace. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have the full riches of God's grace, which is lavished on us. He has given us access to his wisdom and understanding. He has made known the mystery of his will. He is going to fulfill all things in Christ. He has chosen us to be the praise of his glory. We have been included in Jesus and all he represents to this world. We've been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We've been given it as a guarantee. We have an inheritance from God. We're God's possession. We've been given the spirit of revelation. We have the opportunity to see the eyes of our hearts to deepen the the deepest hope there is. We are God's holy people. We have access to incomparably great power and mighty strength. Everything that is in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is now ours. Power that is above all rule and authority. When we were dead in our transgressions, but in his mercy and great love, he has made us alive. We've been raised up. We are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms at the right hand of God. We have God's kindness on our side. All of this is from God. We're God's handiwork, created in Jesus to do good, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are citizens of the true Israel. We were far away, but now we've been brought near. We have peace. We are the one new humanity. We have access to the Father by one spirit. We are bought built on the cornerstone that is Jesus. Through us, the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known. We can approach God with freedom and confidence, strengthened in our inner being with his power. Christ dwells in our hearts. We are loved in a wide, long, deep, high way. We are omni-loved. This love that surpasses knowledge is ours. We can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God and we have a God who can do immeasurably more than anything we ask or imagine and in us, God can be glorified. Quite some list, huh? And that's just Ephesians 1 to 3. Imagine if we spent some time in the New Testament just just making the list. We'd be here for days. Think how many slides that would be. Think how small the font would be. Literal days. (coughs) That is who we are. I mean, just pick one of them, right? Could we just go back to that slide? Even if we just pick one to have a look at. We were far away and now we've been brought near. We have peace. I just pick, you just pick one and mull on it for days. We don't have time to do that, but seriously, pick one and mull on it for days. And so we, this is the Ephesians 1 to 3. This is, this is the foundations upon which we are now building these instructions, this unity and maturity, the instructions to Christian living. This is the firm foundation upon which we are standing. And so when we think about it, who we are, here we have it, helps govern what we, how we think. And so that's where we get to verse 17. And you'll have noticed there's this direct contrast that Paul sets up. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Those who are in Christ and those who are not Gentiles. This darkened understanding and deep-seated ignorance of the Gentiles comes from sheer hard-heartedness. They've desensitized themselves. They've stopped feeling things and so they're looking instead for giving themselves over to sensuality to to help themselves try and feel something again. That's That's the kind of language that's being used here. And it stands in direct contrast to verse 20, the way of life you learned. 
We have learned Christ, it says. We have heard him and we have been taught in him. Those are all verbs. We've been learnt Christ, we have heard him and we've been taught in him. We have been taught, Paul says, to put off our old selves and put on the new self. To be made aware, to be made new in the attitude of our minds because who we are governs how we think. And of course, faith is not just about how we think, is it? It's not just sewed up in intellectualism. Faith is revelatory through scripture and through the Holy Spirit and by faith we learn about Jesus. And sometimes things are revealed to us or we're called to step out in faith and try something different and that then brings space for God to reveal himself in a new way. It's not always as simply ordered as who we are, what we think, how we act. But I think that's the reasoning that Paul is leaning on more here. So bear with me. So we need to to daily remember, to ask God to remind us who we are, what God has done for us, the truth of the gospel. Remember how we learned the truth in Jesus, how we heard him, how we've been taught in him, and then think Christianly about ourselves and our new status. When we know who we are, it governs how we think, and then how we think determines how we act. I was, I was trying to think about an example of this, and the best, the best example I could come up with was um, when I'm a cyclist versus when I'm a pedestrian, okay? So when I put on my light run, I cycle to work. I am a cyclist, and I need to think about which cars may or may not hit me, right? And then I need to act in a way that means that cars are less likely to hit me, so I'm going to indicate and I'm going to look left and right before I cross over, that kind of thing. But when I'm a pedestrian, I think significantly less about which cars are likely to hit me because I'm not on a road. And so that who I am when I'm a pedestrian changes how I think and therefore changes how I act. Would you believe that I don't actually walk along the street going, taking a left and then take a left? Because that would be ridiculous. So who we are governs how we think and how we think determines how we act. Does that make sense as an analogy? Okay, I'm getting nods because I literally thought of it five minutes ago, so that's reassuring. Um, <laughs> okay, so who we are governs how we think, how we think determines how we act, and then we get to put one of Paul's big therefores. Verse 20, therefore, he says, in other words, because of all of the above, not just 417, but all of the above, Ephesians 1, all the way through to this very moment, four, chapter 4, verse 20, all of the above, therefore each of you must... And then we move on to practical outworkings of this reality of who we are and how we think. Paul gives us in this passage, up to 5 verse 2, five concrete examples of this. And as as we look into those, we're going to dig into those second half of this talk. um, But I want to remind you, um, if you were here when I preached in Ephesians 1, about the small grammar lesson that we had. Do you remember? Subject, verb, object. Okay, in Ephesians 1, what you've got is you've got God is always the subject of the verb. So God is always the one doing the thing, right? So he blessed us, right? We're the object, he's the subject, he's doing the thing, right? But in this passage, what you'll notice is that it's flipped. It's slightly different. So today it's all about what we do. We are now the subject of the verb. We are the active agents in this passage. We are not having stuff done to us, nor are we benefiting from God's actions in history. We've already talked about all of that. Instead, today, we are the ones doing the thing. Gotcha? Okay, good. 
All of these concrete examples are actions for us. Because holiness is not a condition into which we drift. We are not passive spectators in our own sanctification. We need to get involved. God has made the first move. He is the active agent in bringing about redemption. I'm not preaching a gospel of works here. Don't panic. But when we fully grasp the reality of what God has done, who we are, because of that, it changes our thinking and that changes our actions, right? It's important to get that in the right order because otherwise we're tied up in a heresy, which is awkward for everyone. And something else to note before we dig into the examples which you can see from this table, is that Paul isn't just giving us a list of things not to do. He's not standing there going, nope, 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 nope. He's not this massive party pooper. What Paul is doing is he's offering substitutes. It's not like rubbish substitutes from the online shop where you order daffodils and get spring onions. Like These are actually helpful substitutes. Paul uses the language of putting off one thing and putting on another like you're changing your outfit from gym wear to office wear. And I was going to do some kind of um, example with like clothes and a coat and a bag and a hat and putting things on and taking those. Far too hot for that. So we're just going to have to imagine it. So you take things off and you put things on. It's like when I get to work as a cyclist and I'm in my lycra and I really shouldn't do my work in my lycra because I am a professional grown-up. And so I take off my lycra and I put on my adult working clothes, Right? So, what are the five examples? We have them on the screen in a table because everything is better in a table. Leave behind lies. Take up speaking truthfully to your neighbour. Leave behind sinning in anger. Take up righteous anger, but don't let it fester. Leave behind stealing. Take up working, doing something useful so you have something to share with those in need. Leave behind unwholesome talk. Take up only what is helpful for building others up. Leave behind bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Take up kindness and compassion, forgiving one another. Okay, I want you to take a moment and read through these and just have a think about which ones jump out to you. Which ones do you find easiest and which ones do you find hardest? I find it easier, maybe the easier way to answer this is when you're hungry, which one do you fall into? Because I get rage. <laughs> Let's just take a minute and have a think. Which ones do you find easy? Which one's actually quite difficult for you? Okay, we're all going to have different answers to that. I'm not going to ask you to share. You're not going to have to volunteer. Just, just hold that. Bring it before Jesus in the worship or just in prayer during the week. Just take some time with that. We all have our, our things that... Besetting sins, my mother calls them. Um, the things that, that stick, stick on us more than others. And we can talk to Jesus about them. And, and Jesus, he works with us and nothing is a surprise to him. So I would encourage you to to take some time with those and just sit with them, sit with Jesus and ask him for his help.
There's no shame in that. But we're going to dig into them a little bit more. Uh, some of them are very much do what they say on the tin, really. Um, the first one being the main one that does what it says on the tin. Um, pretty self-explanatory, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully, truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This is about preserving unity. We saw in, earlier in chapter 4 about unity and maturity in the body of Christ. It's about preserving unity, speaking honestly, having integrity. And we can do this because we know who we are in Christ. We know who others are in Christ. We don't need to lie about it. And secondly, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. I want to draw your attention to something here, something which I think I often miss um, as a British person. Um, the passage does not say don't get angry, does it? It doesn't say don't get angry. Instead, it says in your anger, do not sin. Different. And I think what I want to suggest to you today is God actually expects us to get angry about some things. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God wants us to get angry about some things in his world. We know that God is angry at sin, right? He is angry at the state of the world. And as his people, I want to suggest to you today that we too should be a bit more angry. We need a bit more Christian anger in the world. Let me give you an example. Many of you know I work for a large anti-slavery organization every day. So you can imagine we hear loads of stories about um, people trapped and forced through the most horrendous things and a, a new uh, form of slavery which has recently arisen in Southeast Asia is what we're calling forced scamming. It's basically where people are tricked with a job offer and then they're locked in a compound and then they are forced under threat of electrocution, death, torture, to scam people to give them money, right? You've all received, like, scam calls, right? The, it isn't just that people are being scammed, it's that people are being forced to scam other people. Don't know about you, makes me really mad, right? That is a correct response to something like that. That is a correct response. If we are apathetic in the face of injustice, something is wrong because our God is not apathetic in the face of injustice. <coughs> Christian anger, righteous anger is a thing. It's not bad. Genuinely makes me burn with rage that this stuff happens. And I think that's good and I think that's right and I think that's correct and godly response because I know that God cares about this issue even more than I do. God's wrath against sin is real and it burns hot. As uncomfortable as that might be for us, that's the reality and that's a good thing because I don't want a God who is apathetic in the face of injustice. <clears throat> what Paul is talking about here is not whether or not I should get angry at the issue of, for example, slavery, but instead what I do with that anger as it arises. An extreme example, if I heard about the, uh, the issue of forced scamming and decided to go and enact physical punishment or even murder on those who have been convicted of this crime, that is letting my anger lead me into sin, friends. Don't do that. But if I let my anger and discomfort at this issue spur me on to pray more fervently, 
to work and petition and change my habits and work to see that stat change through the law and through the work of God's people, that is a good use of my anger. That is righteous anger spurring us on to love and good works. Make sense? It's a complicated issue, but I think, I think that makes sense. If you have questions, come ask. Can't promise to answer them, but we can have a chat. When we're angry, and remember, sometimes anger is the good and right response to things we see in the world. We need to be aware of our own fallenness, our own vanity. We have to be on our guard against our remarkable ability to make our anger about us and about our need to have stuff fixed. That's what it means to give the devil a foothold. We can't let it fester. Festering anger, terrible idea. Instead, anger at the right things in the right way should spur us on to action, to prayer, to working to fix the thing that is broken and has made us angry. That's what it looks like to be the people of God, right? That's verse 26. Okay, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. This is about working for the betterment of the community, looking not to take what isn't yours, but instead working in a way that means you're able to support those in need. And if you think about the flip side of this, if people are working in order to give to those in need, that means that those in need won't need to steal. Smart, isn't it? It works as a circle. That's what the community is there for. That's the body of Christ. Verse 29, do not let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this instruction, it comes back to our hearts and our minds. Who are we? Whose are we? You see how who, who we are governs how we think and how we think determines how we act. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then finally, verses 31 to 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, (coughs) it comes back to what God has done. All of these things are rooted in what God has done, who God is and who we are in him. Because God has been kind and compassionate to us and forgiven us despite everything, we too are now able to be kind and compassionate to others Forgiving them. There is no space for bitterness or rage when we fully grasp the reality of the gospel. Who we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. We are God's children, chosen and redeemed by Him. We have heard about Christ and been taught in Him about His truth. So we put off our old self, we take off that old stinky gym kit, and we put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So as we close, then, as we come into land, we need to take a minute. If who we are governs how we think and how we think determines how we act, where do you need God's help today? Is it that you actually just need a fresh understanding of who you are in Christ? 
Do you need to be hit again by the wonder of the gospel? Do you need to spend some time alone with the list? Or maybe you feel that the thinking thing is where you're struggling. Do you feel like you're trapped in the futility of your thinking, like Paul says? Do you feel that your heart is hard and you've lost all sensitivity? Or perhaps it's actioning all of this that you struggle with. You know it in your head, but it hasn't quite made its way down to your heart yet. And so acting differently, whether it's about lies or stealing or unrighteous anger or unwholesome talk or bitterness or something else entirely, the acting differently just hasn't quite clicked yet. (coughs) And of course, remember, it's not just about thinking and understanding. Sometimes it's about simple obedience, even when we don't fully get it. Which kind of makes the people who like to know the reason for rules really cross. Sometimes it's about simple obedience, even when we don't fully get it. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes that only believers obey and only the obedient believe. Sometimes we've just got to step out in faith and do the thing, trusting that the safest place to be is where God has asked us to be. As hard as that is. But whichever one of these three that it is, Maybe adding a fourth, we're talking about obedience as well. Whether it's understanding who you are, knowing how you think, or determining how you act, whichever of these it is, you're never beyond God's help. None of these is impossible. <coughs> I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to always think that the thing that I'm struggling with is the biggest one. Right? That's not just me, is it? No, okay, good. Your one isn't the biggest one. Nothing is beyond God's help. So I'm going to set a two-minute timer to give you some space. I'm going to invite the band back up. And I want you to take some time and just bring it before God. Again, I'm not going to ask you to share. You're not going to have to share with your neighbor about anything that you're thinking about because I'm an introvert and I hate that. This is between you and Jesus. Nothing you bring to him is a surprise and nothing you bring to him is impossible to him. So I'm going to ask uh, if Jamie could just play quietly. Would that be all right? Um, and I'm going to give us two minutes, and then I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing. Should we pray? Heavenly Father, you are good and you're kind and you're faithful and nothing about us is a surprise to you. Father, I thank you for every person here created in your image, blessed in the heavenly realms, omni-loved. I thank you for what they've brought to you this evening. And I thank you that you delight when we come to you. That it is joy for you to meet with us. And so I pray for those who really struggle to accept or understand or know or believe who they are in you. Would you come with a fresh outpouring of your spirit? and just set it deep in their heart.
Lord, may it take root in a way that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away. May they know how high and wide and deep is your love for them. And for those who need to understand and think about these things more, Lord, I pray that you give them wisdom and discernment when you give them people to thrash it out with. Lord, for those for whom obedience and doing the thing just feels really difficult sometimes, I pray that they would know your presence, they would know the safety of your love, they would know your kindness, that your, your gentle invitation, and they would find as they step out of their comfort zone, they are stepping right into your heart. So bless us, Father, as we sing together, as we worship you, as we go from here. Would you remind us again this week of the glorious riches of your grace? Would you surprise and delight us with the reality of who we are in you? And may it be written in indelible ink on our hearts. We pray this all in the name of Jesus is in all and through all. Amen.